If you're enjoying season one of The Word Virus and are interested in seeing it continue, consider leaving a few kind words in a review on iTunes. If you've read Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People, the book on which season one is based, and you liked it, consider saying so in an Amazon review. The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold, the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative contagion, the word virus. Versus the Lizard People. Punk Rock versus the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. Mod Log 5 Mom. My mom used to work with my dad, but now she's a waitress. They were both computer scientists, but she decided to leave the field behind. With the memory so painful, we almost never talked about their old jobs, and the only relic that seemed to have survived that era was the notebook in which my dad chronicled his work, something I'd discovered hidden in the attic and that my mom didn't know I'd taken. A lot of people gave my mom grief about squandering her education and experience to become a waitress, especially my grandparents. But my mom isn't the type to care. If anything, all the flack she got for becoming a waitress strengthened her resolve to stick with it, and she started calling herself the best damn waitress in Portland, probably just to piss off her naysayers. You can do anything, Sarah, they'd say. With your education and your experience, why this waitressing business? We'd both been through hell over the last few years, and together, we felt like survivors with a secret no one else could understand. We were in a club you can't ask about joining until you're already in it. It was awful, but at least we were there together. Since she looks like she could be Linda Hamilton's sister, dresses and talks just like Linda's character in The Terminator, works as a waitress, and her name is freaking Sarah, all my friends call her Sarah Connor. The joke's so stuck that many of my friends even say Miss Connor with no trace of humor at all anymore. She doesn't seem to mind. 
But mom is more like Sarah Connor in the last half hour of The Terminator than the fearful, screaming damsel at the beginning of the movie. Most of her life, she'd had to make do with little money, and since my dad knocked her up and she got married so young, she was used to leering judgmental glances, folks sucking their teeth at her. Poor Sarah, they'd say. Where did she go wrong? She'd known tragedy and suffering. I'd seen my fair share as well. Even so, we'd had it pretty good most of the time, and we'd managed to survive together. Not just us, of course. We had our friends, our lives, our dreams but we knew we were some kind of team weathering a storm. And yet here lately, I'd been driving her insane. On this particular Friday, in November of 1987, she was supposed to be working a double shift, and yet, when I arrived home from Ground Control Arcade in the middle of the day, there she was, at our round kitchen table, soft music playing, a steaming cup of coffee in front of her. Afternoon cup? she asked, not reacting to the way I'd practically fell over when her unexpected presence scared the bejesus out of me. I gathered myself, exhaled deeply with my hand on my chest. Sweet, merciful crap, Mom, I started to say, then paused mid-sentence when I realized it was Christopher Cross on the living room stereo. Ah, jeez, Mom, seriously, isn't it too early for sailing? Never, she said coolly getting up to pour me a mug of coffee from her slightly nicer but still not so great Mr. Coffee machine. Sit down, have a cup with me. I tried playing it cool. I had a headache and it's no big deal if I ditch school now and then because the school called me at work a little while ago, she interrupted. Mom set the second mug in the empty chair in front of me, sat back down, took a sip, and looked up at me, smiling. Uh, I stammered. What did they say? Yes, saying this now, I can see this was a lame thing to ask. That you got in a fight yesterday, nearly assaulted your principal, and made a grand exit in the middle of the day. She drank from her mug again and added, Sit down, waving a hand at the empty chair. Don't let it get cold, it's already been sitting for a while. Assault, I said, slowly taking a seat. I awkwardly set my backpack and skateboard down on the kitchen floor. They used the word assault? Mm Mm-hmm, my mom said, all chipper sounding. What is this? I asked. What's what? This whole disposition. She raised an eyebrow as if my question made no sense at all. Disposition? Uh Uh-huh, I said. No disposition, she shrugged. Think of me as, she looked off thoughtfully, as a researcher. A researcher. A researcher, she echoed. You're a science guy. We're science people. I'm speaking your language. Okay, I said, drawing out the word, expecting more. There was another long pause. I've got to admit, I finally said, I'm confused. I'm doing investigative research on the perplexing mysteries wrapped up in the mind of the adolescent male. Mom, I... Imagine this, she interrupted, silencing me with an outstretched hand. Imagine a scenario in which an adolescent male has always had one hell of a time in high school. The kid is smart, mind you, smarter than most people even realize, but he can't seem to bite his tongue, get his work done, and behave long enough to complete this silly social charade we call high school. Okay, I can see where this is going. Thing is, she interrupted again, finally raising her voice a bit, 
this kid has been operating below his capabilities for years because high school doesn't interest him. Makes sense. He'd rather hotwire robots, play video games, and listen to cassette tapes with his friends. But this kid is intelligent enough to realize there are certain things he has to get through if he ever plans on utilizing his yet-to-be-harnessed full potential. Say, for example, getting through high school without being expelled. I doubt they'll expel me, Mom. Damn it, Danny, she yelled, banging a fist on the tabletop, then immediately holding up her hands in apology, eyes closed, taking a deep breath. I know this isn't your thing, Danny, but you have got to see the bigger picture here. I'm sorry, Mom, I pleaded, already sounding defensive. You don't get it, though. Two rednecks were wailing on me and... Give me a break, Danny. You're too smart to act like you don't know how to see the bigger picture. I considered telling Mom about the brain drain, but decided against it. She had a point here. Yeah, I sighed. Yeah, I know. Mom leaned back in her chair and closed her eyes, thinking, I guess. Finally, she sat back up and took a sip from her coffee mug. I'm sorry, I said again. They're going to suspend you but I think in this case we should be grateful that's the worst of it. I took my first sip of coffee and made a face. It was now lukewarm and gross. You know I hate this angry mom stuff, Danny, she said, looking at me with the first expression I could read since I got home. She was pleading with me. I don't need you to be a class all-star or captain of the football team. I just need you to get through this thing so that you can go on to do whatever amazing thing you're going to do. This can't be where you stall out. You're better than that. I looked down at the table and nodded. It occurred to me in that moment the way my mom carried the weight of not only her world on her shoulders, but mine as well. I felt ashamed for being so short-sighted, but I didn't know how to articulate it to her. She took a deep breath. You're meant for something, Danny. You don't have to save the world, but you have to do whatever it is you've been made to do. What is it? I asked. I guess we'll see, she shrugged. I hope. You're right, Mom, I said, looking her in the eyes. A smile gradually crept up her face, and there she was in a nutshell. My mom. Tough as nails, smart, independent, and a little bit sad. NARS was a strange black hole, and I'm not sure the world was equipped to handle it. 
Imagine some primitive tribal people out in the furthest reaches of the Amazon, their society suddenly inverted by the introduction of television and reruns of Mork and Mindy. Suddenly, the hunter-gatherers can't muster the motivation to spear boars and pick berries because, man, what the hell is Mort going to get into next? So it is with our modern world and NARS, the network-assisted record of self. At first, the novelty of recording your life to some small degree, connecting with friends and family, preserving memories and information, it all seemed like a promising development in our ability to know and relate to one another as, you know, people. That lasted, oh, I don't know, a week or so? Before long, there were already clichés on NARS. Right and wrong ways to post, a new dialect. People you knew for a fact were not awesome were able to craft a more impressive virtual proxy of themselves. Two NARS profiles could be connected or disconnected with the click of a button, and either decision carried with it enormous social implications. Many friendships buckled under the crushing weight of a single disconnection or were strained over time to the point of disrepair by an expected connection that never arrived. NARS users read all sorts of paranoid meaning into who was or wasn't connected with them or anyone else. I hated nearly everything about NARS, but I wouldn't cancel my account, and I sacrificed hours every week on its hypnotic altar. I guess part of the reason was that, like everyone else, I was in my own way lonely and afraid and frustrated with my life. NARS distracted me. But I think the other, more obvious reason was that Emma was on NARS. She wasn't a Narcon, not by a long shot. Emma was one of the few people just using the network for what it was ostensibly created for, sharing the occasional update and checking in on other people in her life. Pathetically, I checked her account for updates daily. That afternoon, after I'd talked to my mom, I went up to the attic and powered up the Atari ST, loaded my NES modem, and connected to NARS. My stomach moved between my lungs when I saw that I had a message from Emma waiting for me. We need to talk. to ensure proliferation of the word virus you can support our efforts via patreon.com slash the word virus lure others to infection by sharing the word virus via social media on twitter at the word virus and instagram at spread the word virus and at the word virus.com <laughs>